Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Exceptional drought conditions across the West have continued to worsen over the years. In fact, the past year has been the driest or second driest in most Southwestern states since record keeping began in 1895. The worsening drought and warming Western climate has led to record low levels in the Colorado River, which is the main source of water for much of the Southwest. Because the water is shared and the supply is dwindling, it's important to bring up water rights. Today, we'll explore the impacts of the drought on the Colorado River and water rights with Eric Kuhn. Eric, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's good. Now, this is a very contemporary and critical discussion, because even as we're taping this here on June 30th, uh, the West is in the midst of drought. Uh, We're seeing just unbelievable record shattering heat in parts of the Pacific Northwest and in Canada. And so this is a timely discussion. You were the general manager of the Colorado River Water Conservation District for over 20 years. So you certainly know water and water rights issues in the West. But before we get that, just give me your sort of on the ground professional thoughts on what's going on with drought and drying conditions and heat in the West right now here in 2020. Well, it's a it's a great example of of I think what we may uh, be experiencing in the future with climate change. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, and I live in the mountains of Colorado. Uh, I live in Glenwood Springs. We're about thirty miles north of Aspen and about an hour uh, west of Vail. We're at the confluence of the Roaring Fork and the Colorado Rivers, and we're right there in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, this year we did not have that bad a winter. We had about an 85% snowpack. Uh, of course, uh, COVID reduced the uh, visits due to uh, you know skiing visits, um, but it wasn't that bad a ski season. And neither was last year, neither was 2020. Uh, in fact, uh, there were some uh, parts of the mountains that had record snows, uh, but we didn't have the runoff. Uh, the runoff has been dampened uh, by dry soil conditions that have developed in because we didn't have a good monsoon for the last three years. Now, as we speak, we're having some pretty decent monsoon weather in Western Colorado. We've got, uh, uh, in fact, uh, showers have shut down uh, the interstate I-70 yesterday for three days in a row because of the heavy rains on burn scars uh, from last year. Uh, but we've had, we've seen a, what we call a temperature driven drought. And normally when we talk about drought, we think of a temporary condition of low precipitation that leads to hydrologic shortages. You know, crops don't have enough water, perhaps cities water supplies run low. But what we're seeing today uh, is maybe a temperature driven drought more than a precipitation drought. Um, Because as you know, as temperatures go up, uh, growing seasons get longer in the mountains 
and uh, transpiration, the amount of water needed for the native and irrigated crops goes up. So for the same precipitation, we're seeing less runoff, uh, we're, we're seeing less water in the river. You know, and of course the Colorado River is a, a major, major river uh, that drains 200, almost 250,000 square miles, about one twelfth of the continental 48 states. It serves two countries, seven states, um, nine states if you count two states in Mexico, uh, 40 million people uh, in the basin and in the surrounding areas like Denver and Los Angeles and uh, you know Phoenix and Tucson all use, all use river water, as do uh, over 5 million acres of, of irrigated croplands, uh, including what we call the, the salad bowl uh, of the United States, which is the Yuma and uh, Imperial Valleys, uh, where they grow lettuce and carrots and crops uh, all year round. But what we're seeing is not enough water uh, to meet the demands on the river that have developed over the last hundred years. Yeah. And we we have a we have a gauge, and those gauges are these big reservoirs uh, that the Bureau of Reclamation built. Uh, the river has a, a flow of about a natural flow of, let's say, 15 million acre feet per year. And in the United States, we use the acre feet to do, uh, to measure water. And it's a football field uh, with a water a foot deep. It's about 325,000 gallons. Uh, so 15 million acre feet, let me give you by comparison, the flow of the Mississippi in New Orleans is about 600 million acre feet. So, wow. you know, you can see uh, it's pretty small. Uh, 15 million is also about the same as the flow of the Mohawk River through, through New York City. Um, but the Colorado River, since it sets a huge geographic basin, there's always been this intense competition for the water of the river. I mean, beginning a hundred years ago uh, with, uh, with the negotiations that ultimately led to the construction of Hoover Dam, uh, the big dam, the first large dam in the United States, uh, that competition has been intense between irrigators and cities and between one state and another, and of course, between um, uh, Mexico and the United States. It's a river that, that starts in the mountains of Colorado and Wyoming, uh, but it ultimately flows to the ocean, the Gulf of Baja, California, down in Mexico. So there's this intense competition for water. Um, we've built these two large reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Uh, they're the two largest man-made reservoirs in the United States. And beginning about 2000, uh, when I was in my working as a in 2000, things looked good. These reservoirs were full. Um, their capacity is over 50 million acre feet, and you know every drop, every every drop of water, uh, the capacity of these reservoirs was full. Well, beginning in 2000, and in the 22 years since then, uh, we've slowly drained these reservoirs down to critically low levels. Uh, so it's been year after year after year. So this is Some not are wetter. This is not just something we're seeing because I've seen recent images of Lake Mead, for example, and it's right. This has been a sustained issue. This is a sustained issue that really began about in the late. The, we, we really began to see the, the impacts of temperature driven reductions in flow in the late 1980s. Um, then 
in the in the 19, 1990s, a very large project called the Central Arizona Project, which moves a lot of water from the Parker area into Phoenix and Tucson, it was finished. The construction was completed. It came on the line. And it has a capacity to deliver about 10% of the, of the river's water uh, to Central Arizona. As soon as it came on the line, then things started tipping and we start and the and temperatures started you know we're, we're, we're rising the the level the amount of water we were getting the inflow to these reservoirs was going down and all of a sudden now we find ourselves 22 years later with critically low reservoirs and what it really means in the long run is uh, we're going to have to use less water out of this river um, yeah. and and that gets into water rights you know well we're going to talk all we're going to talk all about water rights i just wanted you to sort of set the stage here for the yeah. list talking with eric coon and you know water rights is a you know an issue you know even you know, i had a recent phd student of mine at the university of georgia looking at water issues in the four corners region and some of the navajo lands and so uh, right. i kind of had a sort of crash course from reading her dissertation on some of the challenges and some of the issues you uh, mentioned there. I wanted to kind of weather geek out on a couple of things that Eric, uh, that meant he mentioned because he talked about rain on these um, burn scars. And it just, I, when he said that, it really illustrated for me. I spent a, you know, my career before University of Georgia at NASA and we studied the earth as a system. We didn't just look at the meteorology of the ocean. Everything's connected. And so when you mentioned that interesting flooding uh, uh, conundrum there in terms of the flooding on these burn regions where I guess there's you know more runoff and so forth. And then you also said something about the North American monsoon or the lack thereof, I guess, you know, I, I think it's important for listeners that may not be familiar with the West to understand, you know, first of all, it's a little weather myth debunking. You know, I, I always find it amusing when people, it's raining really heavily and people say, it's a monsoon out there. It's, it's one of my little sort of meteorological pet peeves because the monsoon is actually a shifting wind system. And in that shifting wind system or a reverse of wind, I should say, uh, the Southwest U.S., much of the rain that falls that in, during a year is from that monsoon. And so I, I don't know, realized, Eric, that it was it, it was so essential even further with the snowpack, because I know the importance. So can, can you just sort of tie to the listeners the, the importance of the monsoon to the to the hydrological sort of balance there in the snowpack? Yeah. And, and it's something called snow, soil moisture. Yeah. Um, and we can see for the same level of snow, uh, we can see runoff that can vary anywhere from, uh, we can see a 50% reduction in the projected runoff caused by the same snowpack if the antecedent soil conditions are dry. And those antecedent soil conditions are largely set up by how much rain we got through the monsoons. And, and the monsoons, you know, we think of Arizona, New Mexico, but we also, it's also important for Southwestern and Western Colorado, hmm. uh, where, where most of the runoff from the Colorado River really originates in Western Colorado. But those monsoons uh, set up soil conditions. So then if we go into the winter with good wet, you know, soil conditions or wet, and then we're going to have more of that snowpack runs off and becomes surface water. If we have dry soil conditions, uh, then that water, the, the runoff from that snow melt goes in to re recharge the soil moisture and less of it goes into the rivers and less of it goes into the reservoirs. 
And, and I think we've been seeing that really, really had a hard lesson in the last two to three years where we've had decent winter storms, but very, very little runoff. And again, I take that back to spring temperatures are starting to warm up faster and earlier. Uh, we've had a lack of monsoon moisture. Now, I don't know what the long-term trend is in the monsoon. I think it's very, very difficult for the climate scientists to actually look, tease out what's going to happen to this monsoon, which is you say, what happens is you have a big high pressure system that sets up in to the east of the Rockies and a thermal low over Yuma, Arizona, and the two of them bring moisture in from the, from the tropics, from, from Mexico, from northern Mexico. Uh, if that high moves to the, to the west or to the east and you don't get that um, transfer of moisture uh, into the American Southwest, we, we have a lack of monsoon. And that's what happened the last two years. This year, well, we're, we're, we're talking about that heat dome over the Northwest. Well, that seemed to have dragged some moisture up. So we're, we're seeing some pretty good moisture right now, but we need it all summer. And then we need to have decent um, fall precipitation to set up the soil conditions so that the water budget from the, from the snow melt, some of it will go into the rivers. And in, the, in a system like the Colorado River, only about 15% of our precipitation ends up as river flows. The rest of it is evaporated away or transpired away where it goes, in, goes into soil conditions. So we've been seeing a reduction in runoff efficiency and that's just left us with not enough water uh, to meet the needs of the farmers and the 40 million people that rely on it in the Colorado River. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Eric Kuhn. And let me give you a little bit of Eric's background now that we've heard his uh, discussion or intro discussion. He's the former general manager of the Colorado River uh, Water Conservation District. He's the author of Science Be Damned and Damned is spelled D-A-M-M-E-D, how, ignore, how Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. And I want to get his thoughts on that, that book. Uh, he earned his bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of New Mexico and a master of science and business administration from Pepperdine. Earlier in his career, he worked as a naval engineer officer aboard nuclear submarines and as a startup engineer for Bechtel Power Corporation. After joining the Colorado River District in 1981 as assistant secretary engineer, he served on the engineering advisory committee of the Upper Colorado River and the Colorado Water Conservation Board. So we're clearly dealing with someone that knows this topic well. And that's what we try to do on Weather Geeks. We go right to the experts. That's what we, we want to bring to you. So you, you did author this book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. What inspired you to write that book? Well, um, my co-author, John Fleck, and I were concerned 
that the mistakes we made in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s that resulted in apportioning or promising more water through legal water rights and compacts than was available in the river, that we would repeat those mistakes uh, with climate change. Now, in the 1920s, in 1922, there was a great debate over the construction of Hoover Dam in Congress. And the upper river states in the, in the Colorado River system, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, those are, the, those are the states in the upper part of the watershed, were concerned that the faster growing lower states would command all the water. They were concerned that, that these big projects like the Imperial Irrigation District and, and Hoover Dam and the city of Los Angeles that uh, built the, uh, an aqueduct, the Colorado River aqueduct from, uh, from Parker all the way into Southern California. Uh, they turned it over to the Metropolitan Water District, but Southern California was built on Colorado River water. Um, it, it ran out of local water a long time ago. Uh, so what, what these... The, the, the folks in my state, Colorado, and the other states were concerned that if Congress authorized the construction of Hoover Dam and these other big projects in the lower basin, these big projects would take all the water. So they used their power in the Senate, just like today. Um, you know, uh, Wyoming, a little state, had two senators, just like California, a big state, has two senators. So, so we had a stalemate in the Senate over the construction of Hoover Dam. Uh, so we got around that stalemate by going to a provision in the constitution that allows for states to enter into compacts. And they do this for boundaries, um, things like uh, New, New York and New Jersey entered into a compact over islands that, that you know, in the river and those kinds of things. They were, they're, they're there for good reason. The compact provision is there for good reason. Well, this is the first time it was proposed to be used to settle water dispute. And a compact is nothing more than a legally binding contract between seven states approved by Congress and approved by the legislatures of each of those states. So once it's approved, it becomes federal and state law. So what, the, what this 1922 Colorado River Compact did was the upper state said, we'll support the construction of Hoover Dam and you know, the authorization of it by Congress if you leave us some water in the river for future use. So they all got together in, 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 um, first in Washington, then in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1922, and they split the river up. They, they apportioned it among two basins, an upper basin and a lower basin. At the time, they thought, well, there's 20 million acre-feet of water available. And they only had gauges going back to about 1900. So they only had about 20 years of gauges. But what they did was a couple, they ignored from about 1870 to about early 1900s was a period, a dry period in the Western US. And several USGS and academic scientists said, you can't just use the last 20 years of record to split up the river because that's unusually wet. You got to go back to the 1870s. Now, we may not have had very little gauge data going that, but we had weather data 
and they reconstructed flows based on the levels in, in, the, in the Great Salt Lake. So they really had pretty good technical information about a 50-year period from about 1870 to 1920. But what the negotiators of the compact did was they realized that if they used that science data from the USGS and others, it wasn't enough water. So they ignored the 30 years of drought from 1870 to about 1900, and they split the river up based on 20 wet years. Hmm. And as it turned out, we legally um, apportioned or allocated about 17 and a half million acre feet of, of water, eight and a half million to the lower basin states, seven and a half to the upper basin states. In the 1940s, we signed a treaty with Mexico, giving Mexico one and a half million. So you add that all up and it's 17 and a half million acre feet of water. Well, we really knew had we listened to the scientists that there was only about 15 million acre feet available. So we started the process, the legal process of allocating water and authorizing these big projects by Congress based on a myth that there was more water in the river than there really was. Is, is that that's what why we mean? said it was inconvenient science. There we go. I was wondering because the question I wanted to ask what you meant by inconvenient science. And I, and I, I, I suspected that that's where you were headed there uh, with that question. Uh, you know, you just talked about the Colorado Compact and the states involved in the Colorado Compact. Um, there, I, I, I understand in 2019, uh, the states that were involved in this Colorado uh, River Compact negotiated a plan to deal with the shortages. Um, what were what were some of the details of those negotiations, and is this a long term solution or a band aid? It remains to be seen. Um, I think it could be either, depending on what the decision makers do. The um, What we negotiated was a, a, a series of agreements called the drought contingency plans. And we could watch the reservoirs decline over the last 20 years. And about 2013, um, Secretary Jewell met with the states and said, you can't, we can't continue to overuse water. So we need to have these contingency plans. So the lower basin and the upper basin decided we would do these contingency plans. But what we did was we said they're going to end in 2026. So there is still this, I will call it wish, that maybe after in a, in a few years, these drought conditions we've been seeing uh, for the last 20 years are going to go away and things are going to get wetter again. And but I don't think uh, the scientists, the, the, all of the science that I've reading and, and Colorado is home to many, many climate scientists. That's a that Boulder area and, and NOAA. I mean, and they're all basically pointing to this is a longer term problem. It won't go away by 2026. So we're going to have to renegotiate those. So the agreement was signed in 2019. The negotiations to renegotiate it are beginning today. Or, or around today, if you want to call it, this year. Uh, and we're going to have to look at what's going to happen, not just out to 2026, but we're going to have to look at what's going to happen through 2050. And my co-author and I of, of Science Be Damned were concerned we were going to consider the same 
inconvenient science and ignore it. And that the inconvenient science this time is what temperature rise, a rise in temperature is doing to the basin's water supply. So essentially we've promised a lot more water than the river will provide. And we're gonna have to cut everybody back by maybe 25, 30, 40%. Wow. And that's a lot of water. It is. That's one fourth yeah. of the water. And then, you know, and you just think about asking the average household to reduce their water use by 25%. I mean, I think that's a, you know, a challenge because we're, we're a spoiled society. We're just kind of used to running and turning on our tap water and there it is. I mean, and so yeah. I think that will be an interesting challenge going forward. I'm going to take a break here and we'll come right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm speaking with Eric Kuhn, who knows all about water rights issues, uh, dry conditions, drought in the West. Of course, even as we're talking about this today, as this podcast is being released, the Western U.S. and particularly parts of the Pacific Northwest are coming out of a record-breaking drought where I think Portland may have exceeded its all-time high temperature by nine degrees. So just imagine whatever the hottest temperature you experience where you live and add nine degrees to it. And that's what people in Portland and parts of the Northwest have been dealing with in many cases without air conditioning. And so that leads to vulnerability, health issues, dry conditions, wildfires, poor air quality, and so forth. And you know, we're talking about water and drought here, you know, it's just, and as you heard from Eric earlier, this is really a temperature drought. Um, you think about drought and, you know, what I teach in my classes at, at, at University of Georgia, you have meteorological drought, you have hydrological drought, agricultural drought. These days, there's another drought that pops up, socioeconomic drought. And so that leads me to the question, my next question for you, because you mentioned LA and some of the Phoenix area of Vegas, you know, the question that comes to mind is how has population increase and urbanization in this region driven some of the water crisis, I guess, that you we see emerging in that region? I mean, I, you know, obviously there's more water demand because of those populations, but what's your perspective on increased population in that region? Yeah, my perspective on increased population is that it's not the indoor use that we have a problem with. It's most of the water we use in our homes, you know, our dishwasher, our washing machines, um, our showers, where does the return flows go? They go back into a water treatment plant. And for the most part, they go back into the river or they go back into the ground where they can be reused or recycled. So indoor use by itself is not a problem. The problem uh, in the Colorado, quite frankly, is with turf or grass. Um, and if you go like uh, the urban areas along the Colorado Front Range that use a lot of Colorado River water, they take it under the Continental Divide through big tunnels. So they take it from the Colorado River Basin into the South Platte and Arkansas Basin. About 50% of that water is used for lawns. Mm. So we run into a big problem about how much water we can use uh, for turf, uh, for, for parks, and for lawns. And the 
cities that have been really successful in conservation, like Las Vegas and Los Angeles uh, and San Diego, do two things. They limit the size of yards and they recycle. They reuse their water to the greatest extent they can. So they treat it, they put it back in reservoirs, and you can, you can, it's just like the astronauts. You can reuse a lot of water if you treat it. Uh, so what technology is helping us out, but let's go back to the temperature problem. If you're in Las Vegas, what is grass? You know, grass is, it, I think it impacts the heat island effect. I think there's a reason to have some grass and trees especially in cities that are like Tucson and Phoenix and Las Vegas and even Southern California, which is, can be very, very hot. Um, so we have this conflict between urban landscapes uh, and the, the use of water. The second thing that's going on, quite frankly, is that the irrigators were here first, you know, back in 1950, back in 1922, when they negotiated the compact, Phoenix was a town of 10, 15,000 people. It was very small. Las Vegas, uh, at the, when they started the construction of Hoover Dam, had 2,500 people in it. Today, it's over two and a half million. So the, the towns, the irrigators were here first. They have the senior water rights. Uh, we have a system of water in the West that's called a prior appropriation. Those who used it first have the higher legal right to it. So first in time is first in right. And so the irrigators were there first. So what we're seeing is now in order to have better municipal water supplies, cities like Denver, and Colorado Springs on the Front Range and Salt Lake City and Phoenix and Los Angeles are going to these irrigation districts and they're buying up irrigated lands. So they can convert the consumptive use from crops to um, uh, for, for municipal use. So you're seeing a little bit of a, of a conflict between users, between the irrigation users who have the senior rights and the cities who need the water because they've really been growing in the last 30, 40 years, and especially in the last 10, 20 years. Um, so you have this conflict between those who have the water, the irrigation irrigators, and those who need it, the cities. You know, so we have to do two things. We have to move water from farms to cities, and we have to use less. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a difficult political, let me just say it's a, we have to, it's a tight political path to get there uh, and satisfy everyone. And what yeah. we're seeing in the Colorado is happening elsewhere. The Klamath, the Rio Grande, oh, sure. uh, the, the, the Sacramento-San Joaquin system. We're seeing water shortages in you know, major areas of the West, not just the Colorado. And I was going to ask you about the impacts on sort of the livestock and agricultural communities, but I think you kind of wrapped up some of that discussion there when you talked about the sort of having the, the irrigators and moving that water into the, into the cities. I want to circle back as we're drawing to a close here to that 25% reduction number that you dropped on us here a few minutes ago. If you were the, the governor or the uh, a, a decision maker, what would be your short-term solutions if you had to kind of go to worst case scenario? Okay, we got to cut water use across the board by 25%. What are some ways that we can get there in the short term? What are just some practical ways to do that? Just as, beyond just sort of, again, I heard you mentioned things like limiting large yardscapes and things like that. I mean, but if you 
like come in with a sort of magic wand and sort of implement the immediately? What would you? I would, I would cut off water supplies to unnecessary turf. So that's um, the big, that's the biggie. And does that include things like golf courses and large fields and, Right. A lot of fields that we have are very ineffective. I mean, uh, inefficient. Um, you know, we we have a lot of pasture land uh, that's not very productive from an economic standpoint. So you want to save the water for the lettuce fields and the and the and the citrus crops and the and the really high volume, high value um, uh, produce. Uh, so we need to really go after what I call unnecessary turf. And then if you're a governor, the hard thing is, if you're a mayor of a city, when does that unnecessary turf become necessary to establish to, to, for the quality of life in a city in an urban environment? And that's right. a difficult question. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that because I, I do a little research myself at our University of Georgia on urban, urban climate. And, you know, you do want some vegetation in cities because the evapotranspiration does provide some cooling then to mitigate a little bit the urban heat island. So you talked about sort of unnecessary or sort of unproductive turf as a short-term solution. What is your magic wand long-term solution to this problem? Because I agree with you completely as a climate scientist myself, what we've known and have known for some time about the hydrologic cycle and the changes due to climate is that probably the places that are dry are going to continue to get drier and the places that are wet are going to continue to get, get wetter. Yeah. That's what's playing out. So yeah, this idea that somehow notionally we're going to all of a sudden see this magic wetting of that region, I think is wishful thinking to, to be polite. Um, so what is your long-term solution and your idea given that reality? Um, I think it's, um, it's recycling, um, better recycling technology. So it's using the water we have and reusing it, treating it back to potable standards and reusing it again. Uh, you know, and there are places like in Arizona, which have brackish groundwater that can't be used. We can treat it now. So it's reusing the existing supplies and it's limiting turf. Uh, and it's, um, it's basically making a better water budget that's, that's based on the economic realities of, of the water needs to go uh, to where the people are and the water needs to go to the higher economic values. The market system is going to drive that. Uh, but I think recycling technology uh, is going to be the key to our future. And that's what Las Vegas and Los Angeles and San Diego have done uh, already successfully. Hey, just a quick question before I let you go. I remember when we were having some significant drought issues here in Georgia, there were all of these, I heard some people talking about the idea of desalinization at the coast and pumping it upstream to the metro Atlanta area and so forth. And that seemed very energy intensive to me. <laughs> are, are these types of technologies viable in the next 50 years? Um, they, there's a little bit of, of uh, desalinization going on in the Southern California coast. Uh, I think it will help on the margins, but I think it's better to recycle what we've got than to go into the very energy intensive. Because the more energy you use, that energy has to come from somewhere. And if it doesn't come from solar or, or wind, it's going to generate more greenhouse gases. And look, think about air conditioning. Air conditioning is driving the demands, huge demands for electricity which in turn, if it's, if it's coming from a carbon source, is putting more carbon into the atmosphere, 
which is raising the temperatures, which is raising the right, raising the need for more air conditioning. Yeah. 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 It's a trick. So we need problem. to break, we need to break that cycle with water, with recycling water, with retreating it. And we can do it. We have the ability to do it. Wow. This has been an amazing conversation. And to those of you listening out there in the West, dealing with drought and dealing with the heat, uh, we're thinking about you. And frankly, that heat is now spreading to all parts of the United States. If you look at, as we go into July, uh, and candidly, you know, the you know, mother nature is just throwing everything at us now. I'm watching some tropical activity right now in the Atlantic basin as well. We're already up to the uh, we just had the D storm. So it looks like a busy hurricane season as projected as well. Eric, this has been amazing. Before I, before we go, I've got to do the geek of the week. This is the time of the podcast where we highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Lawrence Gulata. Lawrence is a high school student who loves to observe and forecast weather. He founded the weather club at his school and does meteorology for the Science Olympiad. You can follow Lawrence on Twitter at LJWX. And I believe that's an underscore. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate of our Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Eric, this has been a fascinating and timely discussion. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you for the invitation again. And for those of you that are listening to Weather Geeks, longtime listeners and new listeners, welcome aboard. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.